Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. So today I'm going to be talking about money. Doesn't that just bless your heart? I'll give you a a free pass right now if you don't want to hear anything about money, because money in the church is kind of troublesome for people. Um, We had friends in our uh, church in Boulder, and they had come from the Atlanta area, and there was a pastor down the street from their church whose last name was Money. And I said, well, what was he like? He said, well, I never got to see him because he was always driving one of his 10 limousines or Ferraris or something like that. So it's like, wow, uh, that doesn't seem to go with what Jesus taught. Uh, So there's a lot of troublesome things in the church world with money. So I want to focus today on two things. What did Jesus say? And the second thing is, how did that play out in the life of my family? Um, It can't say that, you know, I get to write the rules, how it plays out for everyone. But I just want to share a couple stories of how the teachings about money have... um, been exercised in my own life and really my family's life and I've probably go back generations it's all the same so we're going to be reading from uh, Matthew chapter 6 okay okay is it up on the board okay do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, 
Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So this is not Jesus' first mention of money, but one of the first. He had already spoken about this when he talked about people announcing their offering in the synagogue or whenever, wherever they gave an offering, playing the trumpets, and you'd walk in and people would drop money in. And Jesus said, that's not really a proper use of money. We can't get away from money. I mean, I'd like to live in a world where I just had all my needs met, but sometimes I'm required to provide for myself. I'm required to purchase things for other people. And I'm given opportunities to help other people. So today we're going to talk about money. I'm going to talk about what Jesus said about money. And I'm going to relate it to how do we as Christians, as part of a church, how do we relate to money and what should be our attitude and how should we live with this? So in, in the passage that I read, the first group of people that Jesus addressed were the rich. So he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now who, now why do I say that? How do you know that's the rich? Well, in that culture, in that time, there were really two economic classes. There were the very wealthy who owned things, who were associated with power, who had influence, who could hire people to work out in their fields, who uh, maybe inherited their money. And then on a sliding scale below them, there were everyone else. So if you had the ability to earn things and store things, you were generally the rich. If you simply worked day by day and earned what you needed for today, you were the poor. And maybe a tiny fraction of people fit the mold that we fit today as kind of middle-class people. That was not in their culture. So when Jesus said, do not store, he's talking to the rich people. Of course, the poor people are listening too because they want to be rich. And so Jesus is addressing both groups, but he's really talking to the rich. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Or you might say, stop storing up for yourselves treasures on earth. Because no matter what you accumulate, according to Jesus, eventually it will fall apart. Now, my dad wasn't rich or anything, but he had this idea he was going to save money on renting a car. So you would always fly out from Alaska. And so he got this idea, what if I just buy a jalopy? 
and I park it at my brother's house. Every time I come out, I would no longer have to um, rent a car. And wouldn't that save a lot of money? So he um, bought this jalopy for about $2,500. It was a nice jalopy, you know, it's probably 15 years old. And he would visit his brother for three weeks and then he'd park it in one of his garages. And so he did this for a number of years until the mice from my brother's farm, from his brother's farm, discovered that the car was a nice source of protein. So they chewed up all the wires, they completely ate the inside, and uh, my dad said, well, I guess I don't need that car, and he turns to his brother and he said, I paid $2,500 for that car, I'll sell it to you for 2000 <laughs> His brother said, just look at the Blue Book value. That car isn't even worth $1,000. I think we think of things like that. We own things. What happens to them? They just decrease in value. You buy a new car, you're really happy, you drive it off the lot. It's now worth half of what you just spent. And I think the, the Jewish people actually knew this. Even though they had a, a, a desire to be wealthy and to store up, uh, they remembered some of Solomon's words who said, um, Richards are kind of a double-edged sword. They can be a side of favor, but sometimes you have riches and you can't enjoy it. And sometimes you have riches which makes you a target for theft. And I think Solomon would know his wealth value estimated in today's dollars, 2.1 trillion. And so if he came to the conclusion that maybe wealth isn't all it's cut out to be, uh, it should not have uh, surprised the Jewish people. So when Jesus said that, it's like, okay, yeah, you're right. But Jesus actually went in his teaching, went a step further. He said, um, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. And then he kind of gave this little thing about eyes and lamps and full of light and darkness. And I'm sure when you heard that, when I first read this as a, a little kid, I thought, oh, somebody put these verses out of order. What in the world? He's talking about money, and now he's talking about a lamp? Well, he's talking about the corrupting influence of light. And Jesus always talks in, in parables and in metaphors. The eye represents the heart. The heart and eye are kind of the same Idea: The heart set on God is equivalent to the eye fixed on God. Jesus is saying that the man who divides his vision between God and anything else will eventually lose his vision and not see anything at all. Wealth will turn your hearts from God and result in heart darkness, and Jesus called it great darkness. So Jesus not only said, well, 
Wealth might be a little double-edged sword to wealth will actually corrupt you. Now, how many of, how many of you like to hear that? No, I don't, I don't think we want to hear that because we don't realize the undercurrent that wealth does in our lives. It changes the platform of our lives. It changes us so that we begin to evaluate the world in terms of our own wealth. <clears throat> now, there's a character from literature, and only one person might know who this is. But I'm going to read a little statement, and if you know who it is, you can come up and tell me afterwards. Someone who is corrupted by wealth. Slowly the days turned sour and watchful nights closed in. His love of gold grown too fierce and sickness had begun to grow within him. It was a sickness of the mind and where sickness thrives, bad things will follow. So if you know from literature or from a movie who that might be, come up and, and tell me later. Now I don't have a Starbucks gift card if you answer that question, so. So wealth, according to Jesus, not what it's, not what it's cut out to be. Don't, don't store it up. Don't think it's going to bring you happiness. It's going to corrupt you. And Jesus said the most intense thing, the, finally, he, I think maybe looking directly at the rich, he says, you cannot serve both God and money. And he's really saying two things. Number one, you rich people who think that bless, the blessing of wealth is from God might want to think again. Yes, God does bless people with wealth, but he doesn't always bestow people, uh, bestow blessing on people in, the, in terms of wealth. And everyone that is wealthy cannot in turn say that this wealth is a blessing from God because we know Satan also blesses with wealth. He said that to Jesus. I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and follow me. So just because a person is wealthy, that person cannot say, oh, well, see, God loves me more. He blesses me. And maybe he'll love you someday too. Jesus is saying, no, that's not, <clears throat> that's not it at all. In fact, if you think that you control things because of your wealth, Jesus says, wealth is actually controlling you. Wealth is your master. You are its servant. Now, that's pretty intense. I think we in America don't like to hear that sort of talk because, you know, we kind of strive for wealth. We kind of strive to get things. Uh, I was thinking this week um, how we program our children. <clears throat> so when I was little, and my parents were not materialistic, but uh, Christmas would come and they would say, do you want things for Christmas? And we would say, yes. 
well, wait until the Sears catalog comes. Now, we don't get that anymore. You always look things up online, but we would go out to the mailbox every day. Is the Sears catalog or the JCPenney catalog? None of those exist anymore, I don't think. And so they would come and it was a fight. I want it first. I want to go through the catalog and I want to mark off what Santa will bring me for Christmas. Why? Because wanting things, getting things will bring me happiness. And so I would mark down, first you have to say, how rich are mom and dad? Because they never really, and my parents were really poor, so they never said, your limit is $20. They, they didn't say anything because it was embarrassing. And so we would mark down and then, uh, then we would go and correct our siblings things. You can't have that. If you have that, that's 50 bucks. Then I get something for 50 bucks. So you have to limit yours. And so we would compete about who we're, you know, was going to get what. And I, I have a confession that to make my sisters really angry, I would get the catalog first and very carefully remove the pages from the catalog with all of their good gifts on it. So they would just look through there and say, this catalog only has boy toys and clothes. What is going on? I have no idea. So they're not watching right now, but if they happen to watch, then I'll have to make it up to them somehow. You cannot serve, um, you cannot serve God with the attitude that material things are where your happiness lies. But somehow that's we, we program into our kids. The bottom line for Jesus is money is dangerous. It will take you away from God. And few, if anyone, can resist its power. Now Jesus also addresses the poor in this, in this um, passage. He doesn't really say now. I'm talking to the poor now. How do I know it's talking to the poor? Because Jesus says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink. Who worried about what they would eat or drink? People that didn't have something to eat and drink. Then you start worrying what's going to happen. Um, worrying is, is very apparent. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking my dog this morning. He gets out of bed and he comes and wakes me up. And then he wants to remind me it's time for him to eat. And so he will um, lay on me, he will jump on me, he will lick me. And he has this thing where he goes. <laughs> and so he waits for me to do it back. Then he knows he's going to get some food. So if you don't have food, you make an effort to to get somebody's attention. I need something. Well, how do you do that to God? You can't wave a banner because sometimes we're, we're told, uh, well, God already knows your needs. So you embed it in your heart and you say, well, you can't really express this idea that I, I'm in need and I'm hungry. So I'll just think about it constantly. Well, I don't have good clothes to wear. I have a new job. I have 
my clothes have holes in them. You know, and in our culture, we worry about where we're going to live. We pay about paying the bills and all of that. So the poor people had particular worries that were external, but they also had some misconceptions of God that had, uh, that had embedded into their hearts and changed the way they, they viewed the world. When you worry, and according to Jesus in here, you stop thinking about your value in God's eyes. Jesus said, look at the birds. They don't sow. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more, much more valuable than they? So there's a misconception in the world. If you're rich and famous, you're valuable. And if you're not, well, you know, God loves you, but, you know, it's the kind of love that you have maybe for someone you don't really like. You, you have to say you love them. You know, oh, it's like, oh, yeah, I love you very much, but sit over there. And they believe that. In their culture, they believe that. The rich people were saying, God has blessed me. God loves me. And to the poor, it was unspoken but still spoken loudly in the voices of silence. You're not very valuable. When I visited um, Nicaragua about 12 years ago on a mission trip, we went down to Samoto to help build a church. And uh, so we're driving in from the capital city and taking a bus through the countryside and just poverty everywhere. And so I turned to... Uh, I turned to one of the people and they said, wow, this looks a little bit different than the capital city. This looks just destitute and the roads are, you know, holes in them. And, and I said, what, why doesn't the government do something about this? And they said, well, it's like this. The government is helping the people in the capital in the major cities and they don't care one iota for people that live out here. They're on their own. So that gave me my first inkling, because we live in a country where supposedly the government cares about everyone. In Jesus' time, the poor were expendable, and the poor believed that their value was nothing. And so Jesus had to address that and said, no, in God's eyes, you are valuable. But a second thing he wanted to get through their heads is the focus of your life should not be the pursuit of material things. He said, the pagans run after all these. The pagans who don't know about God seek to meet their own needs by their own effort. But you as people of God should know better because you know about God's love. And that was uh, a new message. Message is you are valuable and God will take care of you. Now, how did Jesus organize a principle for both of these groups? Group number one, rich. Don't think your riches mean much. They can corrupt you. They can take you away from God. The poor don't think your lack of riches means you're not valuable. God will take care of you. 
The principle that Jesus gave, I think it might be going to go up on the screen, seek first, or first seek the God's kingdom in righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seeking God's kingdom, what does that mean? It means we seek to organize the world around God's rule. What would it look like if God was in charge? With our status as beloved children of God and our mission as the salvation of the world. That's the kingdom of God. What is God's righteousness? We focus on the meaning of righteousness intimately tied to the ideas of justice, holiness, wholeness, and peace. We try to set the wrong to the right in our own lives and in the world. Seeking first God's kingdom and God's righteousness means focus what you have on what God wants to get done. To the rich, it means you have a resource Seek first God's kingdom, point your resources toward that. To the poor, it means God's purpose for the world is the purpose for your life. And never let confidence in God's love waver. So how does that play out in the ordinary life of a person? I want to share some stories, not because I think I'm something special, not because I think, well, hey, just be like me. I got it all together. When I think of the, the ways that God has intervened in my life, uh, I'm overwhelmed because it's not that I think I deserve it or my family deserves it or we come from a long line of Christians that God you know, owes us for all the stuff, whatever. It's just because God is God, and he wants to do good things to people. So my first story is when I was a toddler. We grew up in Alaska. I grew up in Alaska. We were a part of a Nazarene church. Um, my dad worked as a welder. My mom stayed at home, took care of kids. We lived in a 850-square-foot house, pretty small, that my dad had bought for 300 bucks and moved it outside of town, built a basement underneath it. And um, it wasn't much of a house, but it was his. And that's where we grew up. And they were very much in love with the church. My dad had grown up in the Mennonite church and had found the Nazarene church in Alaska, and there was no Mennonite church. And his first memory was he met the pastor who happened to be helping to build uh, a new church. And the pastor jumped down into the pit with a shovel and was digging the foundation and just as dirty as any of the workmen. And he said, if the pastor can be that involved and just be like one of us, I can be part of this church. And so he came back to the Lord and there's lots of stories I can tell you of his life. But they just were in love with the church. My mom played the piano, my dad sang in the choir, they were involved in every single way. And we had two kids, so my mom was involved in children's ministry. The church was growing until the local military base 
did a rotation. Now, maybe some of you know what that is. Every so many years, the soldiers that are assigned to one base get reassigned somewhere else. And so, um, turns out about a third of the church had been part of the military base. And in one month period, they all left. And so the board met and said, ooh, this doesn't look good. Uh, after the dust had settled, they said, our church giving has decreased by 50%. They were in the middle of building a new building. They had a full-time pastor. What are we going to do? Well, Fairbanks is pretty remote. You can't go out and say, let's find some more people. There are no more people. And if they come up there, they certainly don't come up in October when the military people were shifted out. And so um, they sat around, you know, debating how can we get money. And money was usually raised through the offering. So I imagine it was pretty strange when someone on the board said, well, since we're down by 50%, why don't we just ask everyone in the church to give double what they're giving now? Hmm, would that be a good plan? Well, for most people uh, with disposable income, if you were wealthy, it was like, well, I guess so. I just won't go to Starbucks for coffee or whatever. But when you're living on the very edge, uh, to ask someone to do that, I imagine conjured up lots of internal opposition. Well, first of all, they might have said, well, according to the Old Testament, I'm only supposed to give 10.0%. You're asking me to give 20%. That's not, that's not biblical. Well, first of all, that's the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't have an upper limit. All of the examples in the New Testament, giving is associated with need. You just read it. There's a need. People are asked to give. Well, anyway, they agreed to do it. And uh, it went on for 18 months. And then the church was self-sustaining again. And I asked my mom later when I became an adult, and, I, and, and we had heard that story many times, but as an adult, um, even I might have already been a pastor, I said, what was that like? What was that like for your pastor and the board to stand up in front of the church and say, we need each person to dig deeper? And she said, it was, it was just a marvelous time, which is not the word that I expect to come out of her mouth. She said, uh, uh, we didn't even miss it. We don't know how, because they, they didn't have any money at the end of every month before that time. It was like zero. Uh, we didn't even miss it. But not only that, our cars didn't break down. And um, things that would normally break just stopped breaking. And the food that we bought at the grocery store seemed to go uh, more meals. 
And she said, I, I can't explain it. But we can when we reflect that Jesus knows about our needs. And if we have a need and we've tried our hardest to meet it and we are focused on the kingdom, then maybe the ball gets back to God's court. Well, you can hear that story a hundred times in your life. Um, and it doesn't mean anything until you become an adult and you have to say, well, that was true in 1963, but I bet that's not true anymore. So Stephanie and I are newly married. We have two kids. I'm in graduate school. Uh, I, I have a part-time teaching assistantship. We live in a small apartment and we're trying to figure out how to make it work. And we had a plan. We'd get paid at the beginning of the month. We'd map out our meals and we needed to come up with 30 meals, some months 28, some months 31. And then we would invite ourselves over to grandma's house. We'd say, grandma, we'd love to see you and have dinner. She's, oh, that would be great. I, I just know what I'm gonna fix. And you can take the leftovers home. And we would say, we're counting on it because that's three meals for us. And so we did that and it was great. And we were getting by barely, uh, but we were also involved in the church and I just felt like God was just there and he was, he was speaking to me. And after church one Sunday, I told Stephanie on the way home, I said, you know, I think we ought to give money to the church. And I got this look from her. I still get the look right now. Are you crazy? What is wrong with your brain? I said, well, 10 bucks a week, that's not much. And she said, are you crazy? What is wrong with your brain? Yeah, maybe those are not her words, but that was the look in my mind. And so we talked about it and uh, we, we said, well, 10 bucks is not much. Maybe we'll just see grandma more often. I don't know. Uh, so we started giving $10 a week. And lo and behold, at the end of the first month, we were not negative. It's like, wow, how did this happen? Did the price of ramen noodles go down this month? I don't know. You know, did, did we stop eating? And if you, of course you have two kids, they, they're going to eat no matter what. Um, but we decided after that, well, if $10 worked, what about 20? What about 50? And so within a short period of time, um, we were giving quite a bit to the church and feeling really good about it. It wasn't like I'm resenting, oh, like, there's my McDonald's going out the door. No, I just felt good. Our needs were being met. We had zero debt. We were making it. Now, I can't explain it. I, I can't go and analyze it to say, yes, the price of macaroni, milk, butter, all went down in price. You stopped eating bacon, which you should have stopped a long time ago. Da, 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 da. See, it all adds up right. And I am that kind of a person. I would analyze something to death to try to figure it out. 
and I have no idea. So fast forward 10 years. Now we're, we have owned a house, we're both working, and I have a chance to move to New Mexico to take what I would consider my dream job. Uh, which really meant taking a pay cut because to get in at the lab, at Los Alamos National Lab, a lot of times you have to start as a postdoc, which is uh, a job kind of lower than a staff member, but with the promise that if you work a couple years, then you get promoted. So we did that. We sold our house, we moved to New Mexico, and, and on one of our trips, we, uh, we went to look for houses. And uh, we looked at houses, this is November. And there were no houses. There were some things they called houses. One of them had a washing machine in the bedroom closet. And at that point, I had three kids. And uh, it's like, well, we can't, we, can't live, we can't live with the washing machine in the closet. I just refused to do that. One, they told us when the wind blows, the furnace pilot light goes out. Is that not going to do that because the wind has been blowing since we got here. So finally, we found this house uh, in White Rock, which is about 10 miles away, and it had been for sale. The owner couldn't sell it, and so he said, well, I'll rent you for six months. So I said, have a place to live. We moved in, got all unpacked. They shipped all of our things. We joined the Nazarene church there, joined the worship band. We were, we were just deeply in love. They, we went from a church where they did two hymns and a prayer chorus, and maybe you, if you grew up in the church like that, to a church where they did 12 worship songs. It was like, this, is, this, this requires, and they were one right after another, they would just all blend together. And so it was fantastic. We were just, we were deeply in love with the people, the church. We knew that God had sent us here. We had lots of good friends. This is only after a couple months. When the owner of the house that we were living called me up and said, oh, changed my mind. I'm putting the house for sale next week um, and you'll have to be ready to sell it at a moment's notice. Um, you know, I'll still honor the six-month lease um, unless you want to move out early. It's like, are you joking me? The housing market hasn't changed. There's still no houses for sale. In fact, we had paid off all of our debts when we moved there, and so we didn't even have money for a down payment. Um, so it's like, great. This is really great. So I had a plan. Stephanie was going to go back to Minnesota with the kids and live at her mom's house. I hadn't really told her that because uh, I'd get one of those looks. And I was going to get a tent and go out and stay in the Haymans National Forest, where there's a lot of people living out there uh, in, in the boondocks. I thought, I can live out here. I can take a shower at the, the local waterfall or whatever, and I would just work. So I came into music practice uh, Saturday night. We always had music practice on Saturday night, and the worship leader said, what's wrong? I said, oh, well, here's the situation. And without batting an eye, he said, God will make a way. It's like, what is that? Lyrics from a song? Well, it was. And we actually were singing that song. God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He will be my guide, hold me closely to his side. 
With love and strength for each new day, He will make a way. He will make a way. And when he said it, he didn't blink. He just looked at me. Like, okay, this isn't just a lyric of a song. You actually believe this. He said, we'll just pray about it, and you'll just wait and see. It's like, I'm going to wait and see in my tent. That will be really nice. So, uh, Stephanie wasn't working, and although she was you know, looking around, and I had a postdoc, which was a salary, which was about 30% of what I used to make, um, and I just kind of signed that up for a couple years. Uh, so I didn't really have any prospects of saying, ooh, God will make a way, but I got an idea to help him out. Uh, I had done that in, in graduate school. Uh, I'd given plasma. And those of you who have been poor college students, you can actually make a lot of money. Uh, and you can uh, make so much money that, you know, it is actually quite profitable. I had to quit because one of my students was the person who was poking. And so I thought, got to get out of here. She's not a very good student. So anyway, I had no clue. How am I going to come up with money for, how am I, first of all, I have to find a house. The only house that we could find was the one we were renting. It's going to be sold. I can't afford what they're asking for it. And I have no down payment. Well, a couple weeks later, my company calls me up and says, hey, uh, you know, we haven't found anyone to replace you. And apparently you're the only one that knows how to do this. So could we hire you to come back and teach us? And the same thing happened for Stephanie. So all of a sudden we had extra income that we didn't have before. And so we presented an offer based on what we could afford and it was accepted. And I'm sure the worship leader was going, yep, you should know this by now. Um, I think God has a sense of humor because sometimes the ways that he provides are so out of the ordinary that they would just amaze us. I'm going to fast forward about 15 years from the last story and just admit, um, you know, once you come from that high, sometimes you just forget that God can do things. Um, so we're pastoring in Boulder. I had quit my science job and gone to the Bible college, and that was a whole other set of miracles where we got checks in the mail before our car broke down to pay for the repairs. It's like, who does that? You know, who mails me a check for a car breakdown that hasn't happened yet? Uh, well, apparently God works that way. But we're in Boulder. We're pastoring this little church of about... 30 people on a good day. Uh, we had it up to 50 at one time. And uh, we were trying to reach out to the kids in the neighborhood and families and so forth. And we had a young woman who was about 25 who had four kids, an unmarried. She, um, the oldest was 10. She hadn't finished high school. She had no income. She lived just one street over. And so the kids would always be over at our house begging for cookies and We'd see him at church and at the bus stop. 
And uh, so that was real nice. Um, one day she called us and said, social service has taken my kids away. And uh, I was wondering if I could designate you as kin and that you could um, get them all back and then help me get on my feet. And then uh, I'll, you know, take them and we'll live, you know. So, of course, sure, you know, I'll do that. I'll do that. And, of course, I found out something about the family that their grandmother had attended the Nazarene church, you know, 50 years before. And that her life had gone off the wrong way. Uh, God hadn't forgotten about them. And so I thought, well, this is a good, you know, this is a re reborn, make this family just be reborn. Well, they moved in with us. Two months later, the mother's nowhere to be found. By that time, the kids are calling me mom and mom and dad. They're not calling me mom, but they're calling us mom and dad. And so uh, it's like, well, and they, they looked at us and they said, uh, well, would you like to adopt these kids? And my my oldest daughter had just moved out. She was 19. So it's like, I, we were done. We were done. And it's like, well, we, we still have our hair. We still have our health. We haven't gone crazy with raising kids. Oh, how, how hard could it be? We'll just raise a second batch. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> well, um, things were going well. And then um, some of the kids had some mental health issues. And one ended up in jail. One ended up in and taken away from us because she kept running away. And that problem sort of got passed down. So now we have another one of our kids who is just struggling. We are trying to stand uh, by that person. I'm not going to give you the intimate details. But they've been in jail. Uh, there been every kind of treatment that we could think of, a bunch of treatments that we didn't even know existed, uh, and nothing is working. And the only option given to us was, let's put him back in your house, and when it has a blow up, then we'll just push the reset button and put him back in your house. And every time there was a blow-up, it meant broken windows, light fixtures pulled out of the ceiling, holes in the wall, so forth. And that was getting old. And so we found a place that would treat him um, outside of our home. And I got some uh, advice from a person in the community who said, well... This is what we did when, when our son was out of control. We just put a second mortgage on our house and we used that money to send him to this treatment facility and it cost $6,000 a year. But, you know, we just did it. And so I said, I'm a pastor and I live in a parsonage. I can't, maybe I could have asked to put a second mortgage on the parsonage. <laughs> So that didn't work. So finally we decided out of desperation, we found a therapeutic ranch. And we said, well, we'll use all of our savings, all of our retirement stuff, and we'll send him there. 
And when the money runs out, we'll bring him home. And so I shared that with my little prayer group. I had a three-person prayer group. And uh, one of the younger guys said, well, why don't you just ask God to give you the money so you don't even have to touch your savings? Has anyone ever said that to you? Well, I had to grab my hand because I know it was going to go like this to say, you need some sense slapped into your head. The only time that I knew from a Bible story that God did that was the, the widow, when the prophet stayed with her, he said, make me a meal. And she said, well, I only have a meal for one. It's for my son and I, and after we use the money up, we're just going to die. And uh, he said, go ahead and make it. And then every time she opened the jar, the oil in the meal was still there. So I thought, well, that happened like 3,000 years ago. I don't think that's going to happen anymore. He said, well, just go ahead and pray. We'll just go ahead and pray with you right now. So I said the words and um, thought, well, maybe I can set him straight because when we run out of money next month, I can say, well, that was a fantasy. So we had to come up with $5,000 a month. I made $2,000 as the pastor. Pastors don't make a whole lot. And we didn't have extra $5,000. I even went back and checked. Is there an extra $5,000 at the end of every month in my checking account? There's not. And I'm really good with math. So I know I wasn't making a mistake. So uh, we decided we we're going to charge it every month on a Southwest mileage uh, credit card because we'd get 5,000 miles. At the end of a couple months, we'd have enough money. We could just get on a plane and take off and go somewhere. So uh, at the end of the first month, you know, I logged into my account and I said, I know we had some extra things coming in. Um, uh, I took an extra teaching job and Stephanie got a raise and the church stepped in, gave us a little bit more. So it was up to like um, $2,500 a month from the church. Not, not enough to cover. And lo and behold, there were $5,600 in my checking account. It's like, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Didn't have to transfer any money out of savings. Um, the next month was the same. Now I'm beginning to worry here because it's like someone's going to think that I had my hand in the till. It's like, let me count the offering plate. I'll help you. Uh, and we, have, we had counting procedures, so I never even touched money. Uh, it happened again. Month after month went by when the money came in from some way. And I, I said God has a sense of humor. I was driving by CU one day, and this lacrosse ball comes flying through the air and smacks my car. I drive it here once in a while. You can come and ch check it. I haven't, I haven't got it fixed. So I call up CU and said, hey, a lacrosse ball hit my car. Oh, really? I sent them a picture. They said, well, go get an estimate. 
and uh, uh, we'll send you the money. So I got an estimate, they sent me the money, and they said, you know, this was supposed to be to get the car fixed. But that money paid the bill. And things like that started happening. And month by month went by. We transferred him to another uh, lower-priced uh, treatment center later. But we spent almost $150,000 on his treatment. We don't know where the money came from. It just came. And since he's not there anymore, I've been checking. There's not $5,000 extra in my checking account. So I'm not really sure, and I'm not really wanting to dig deeper. Didn't get anything. My dad maybe sent me 10% of that. I'm not really sure what happened. But all I know is that God gave me that experience for me to know that I am loved according to God. Because we were trying our best to raise these kids. And you come down to the end of uh, your resources. Um, that's not the end because God has resources yet that you can tap into. Seek you first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you are here today, and I hope I've told the story correctly, and I thank you so much for walking with me through so many times. And I know the words of Jesus are true. I know that in every season of life, you stand with us. If we would but focus our lives on you, you will provide. In Jesus' name, amen.